this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles there, if you brought one with you. If not, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. Again, that's Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. So I'm going to say a word, and you, you tell me whether or not it makes you comfortable. That word is naked. Nobody likes that word, right? Even seeing it, hearing it, or saying it can make us uncomfortable, right? Now, the word obviously means what you think it means, but it also has many other symbolic meanings that we're going to kind of revolve around a little bit this morning. Webster's defines the word naked as without clothing or covering, again, obvious, but also it can mean unarmed or defenseless. Since football season is starting, you might hear if you're watching a football broadcast, if you see Dak Prescott tonight as the Cowboys beat the Giants, roll around the right side or the left side of the line, away from the blocking where he has no blockers in front of him, an announcer might call that a naked bootleg. He is defenseless. He is unarmed in that situation. You might say uh, that another way that Webster's defines it is it's devoid of concealment or disguise. The naked truth, and otherwise. That there's nothing trying to cover up anything, but rather it is completely honest and forthright. You might also see that Webster's define the word naked as unaided, uh, especially when talking about vision. If you are looking at something without the use of, of glasses or a telescope or a microscope, you would say that you are looking at that with what? The naked eye. Right. This word can mean many different things. But at the heart of it, there is this idea of being uncovered or exposed. And the author of Hebrews is going to use that as a metaphor this morning. Have you ever had one of those dreams where you find yourself in a public place without the help of clothing? Has anybody ever had one of those dreams? Now, I know you're lying that nobody is is raising their hands Psychologists say that four out of every five people at some point in their lifetimes will have this dream. This dream of you're in a public place, somewhere that you go often, school or work or the grocery store or something like that, and you suddenly at some point realize that you don't have any clothes on. Now, you would think that your brain would try to figure out, okay, this doesn't make sense, I'm probably dreaming. Like, you would think that your brain would tell yourself, I normally put on clothes before I come to H-E-B, so there must be something wrong with this situation. Pinch, wake yourself up, but that's not what your brain does, does it? It goes into the fight or flight mode, and obviously in that situation, you're going to fly away. You're going to try to hide. You're going to try to run away. It is a recurring dream for a lot of people and psychologists, and it happens for like 80% of the people on the planet have it at some point in their lifetime according to the, the master psychologist in the world. Take that for what you will. But psychologists also believe that this dream often comes from a place of insecurity, that the reason why people's minds go there overnight is because uh, of a feeling of embarrassment or vulnerability or insecurity or shame about something that has happened or something that they see might potentially happen in the future. I have had that dream a couple of times. It's, it's nothing that anybody wants to have. I don't have a recurring dream of that nature, but I do have a recurring dream that evokes a similar feeling. I have a recurring dream, and I might have shared this before, but it goes back to high school where I'm either on stage in a one-act play event or I'm on the field during a football game, and I have forgotten my lines or I have forgotten uh, the play that's being called. Um, 
My coach was old school. If you forgot to play, you were going to get chewed out. You were going to get pulled out at least to play. So things were going to go wrong. And there's not much more like in the world that you can think of being more scare or embarrassing worthy than to be on stage in front of a lot of people and completely forget what you're there for, to completely forget the line that you're supposed to deliver. And so uh, looking at that and, and thinking along these lines of what psychologists say about the dream of, of waking up without any clothes on somewhere and kind of looking through that through the same lens, it causes me to look inward and say, okay, what's going on when I have that kind of dream? Maybe what's going on is that I have this fear of seeming unprepared, of seeming as if I don't have it all together, and I don't want other people to figure that out. Now, sometimes people figure that out very quickly, if you pay close enough attention to me, that I don't have everything figured out, that I'm not always as prepared as I would like to be, but I would like to keep that to myself, and I would like to pretend like nobody else sees that. And so that is an insecurity within me that comes out in my subconscious while I'm dreaming as that sort of story that gets played out, a real-life moment that I've feared before actually speaking towards those deep insecurities. We fear that moment when we become vulnerable, when we become open and uncovered before everybody else's eyes. But you know, the idea of being exposed, naked, vulnerable, wasn't always a bad thing. If you have or have had at any point in your life little children, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? When I say little children, I'm talking three or two and younger. Uh, We have Cannon right now who is one and a half just about. And, you know, with two children, if, if usually Cheryl and I tag team bath time, but if one of us is on our own, you know, you're trying to get one going and you're trying to get the, the cannon out of the bathtub and dressed and then you, you, my attention gets on Corbin for just a second and you know how one and a half and two-year-olds are, right? When they're naked, it's just like, boom, I'm gonna run through the house streaking and squealing and there's no sense of shame, there's no sense of insecurity, they don't care, they don't think anything about it. As a matter of fact, it actually seems like they prefer to be that way. Can I get an amen from parents in the house? house this morning. There is no sense of fear or worry or shame in that child. But not only from our children's perspective, but when man in general, when humankind was in our childhood, if you can go back to the garden, it was the same way. The last verse of Genesis chapter 2 verse 25, after God had created man and woman in this intimate experience of creating them out of the dust of the ground and then taking the rib out of Adam's side and forming woman with it. We see this beautiful picture of a God who created mankind uh, on, on which to shed his love and for them to shed love on each other and for it to be this beautiful, intimate, shameless experience. And it says it at the end, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Genesis 2.25, the last Scripture before we see the story of the fall in Genesis 3. Now, there's a literal truth to that, that they were uncovered and completely unashamed, but there's also a metaphor being told there as well. That Adam and Eve had done nothing for which they should feel shame at this point. That there was no inkling of what shame might be or guilt. Let me ask a rhetorical question. Can you imagine to live life without shame or or, or guilt or regret? I I, I say a rhetorical question because the answer is no, you can't. None of us can. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, all of us know what guilt feels like. 
All of us knows what regret feels like. And even though most of us hopefully rest in the forgiveness of Jesus and the grace that he offers and don't let that sin bog us down anymore, there's still a part of us that would rather us not have done those things that we have done, that regrets doing those things. Metaphorically, this passage in Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve have nothing for which they felt shame. But after the fall, things are different. Uh, as soon as I get the picture, and I heard a theolo- or read a theologian put it this way one time, as soon as Eve's and Adam's teeth pierced the skin of the fruit, everything went south and everything changed. One of the first things that happens after they eat the fruit, Genesis 3, 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they go hide from God after that. That one of the first things Adam and Eve experienced after sinning and disobeying God was the feeling of shame and guilt. Again, we see it literally and physically in them actually covering themselves up with loincloths that they made from fig leaves. But we also see them do that metaphorically and spiritually as they hide from God when they hear him walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And we've been doing it ever since, haven't we? Any time that we feel exposed, any time that we feel vulnerable, any time that we feel metaphorically naked in front of God or other people, we move to cover ourselves, we move to make ourselves seem at least invulnerable to anybody else who is looking at us ever since the fall. What if I told you that God wants to undo that? That that God wants us to be completely comfortable in front of him, to be spiritually open and vulnerable Willing to let him and his word and his truth into the deepest, darkest parts of our soul. Uh, What if I told you that God wanted not only that with us and him, but also wanted us to experience that together? For us to live in a family or in a community of faith, in a church family, in which we could be completely honest and vulnerable with those around us as we share and do life together. I think that there's proof that this is what God wants because of what we see in marriage. This is what God intends in marriage. For a husband and wife to allow all of the, 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 the surface stuff to fade away and for them to be completely open and and completely honest with each other in every way for there to be vulnerability between two people and God builds a relationship in the midst of that that doesn't exist anywhere else in creation. But again, I think God wants that for all of us and our relationship with him and our relationships with each other to be completely uncovered, vulnerable, open, and shameless with each other. And I think that one of his main tools for doing that is his word, is to take away all of the surface level issues, all of the things that we try to hide behind and pierce through to our heart, to our true nature with his piercing word. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning as we continue along in our Word 511 series, that scripture reveals the naked truth. God's word, as it always has done, reveals reality, reveals truth for good or for bad to tell us exactly what's going on. The last book of the Bible is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ is in the idea that it pulls back the veil for us to see what's really going on, what's really going to happen, what really is happening, that God does that through all of Scripture, even in our hearts, so that we can see what is really going on. 
Spending time consistently in God's word will remove that barrier in our relationship with God. It will remove the walls that we try to set up to keep him out. And spending time consistently in God's word will remove the barriers that we've placed in our relationships, things that we try to hide behind, guilt that seems to have covered us up so that we can't know and be truly known by those that we love and spend our lives with. Again, the passage this morning is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, where the author of Hebrews writes these words. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God is living and active, the author of Hebrews says. It's not just a book. It's not just a work of literature. The word of God is a living thing that has the power to enter your minds and wreak havoc in a good way, to bring change, to break strongholds, to give encouragement and desperation, to be able to speak into any situation, whether we are high or whether we are low, whether we need to be brought down and humbled or whether we need to be lifted up and encouraged. The word of God is living and active. That means when we read these words out loud to each other, when we participate in the the reading of the word through the seven days that I'll talk about towards the end of this sermon, when we do that, we're not just reading words from a page. We are reading the word of God. And when it comes out of our mouth or when it comes off the page and into our minds, it's not just any other story. It's not just any other history. What it is is the living and active word of God that leaps off the pages, that goes through the sound waves that come out of people's mouths when it is read, and it enters our heart and our minds through our eyes or through our ears, and it does something to us that no other word can do. It has the power to bring change where change is needed. No other word can do that. You can read the best book in the history of all books, whatever your favorite book is. I don't know what that is. Pick your favorite piece of literature. Nothing in that book, no word in that book can do what the word of God can do to bring change and to make a difference in your life and in your heart because this word is living and active. It has power. This word delivers constant and even sometimes differing application. When I say constant application, the word of God is always at work. And when I say differing application, I mean if if you read the prodigal son, if you read the story of the prodigal son as Jesus tells it in the Gospels, there are so many different parts of that story that could speak to you in a different moment. When I was a son, it spoke to me. When I was only a son, when I was not a father, when I was only a son, when I was a teenager, it spoke to that rebellious nature within me. Uh, It spoke to that desire to to give up what I had and to go chase my own thing. And that if I ever acted on that desire that God and my father as well, because I had a good father, were waiting on me to return, were inviting me back and were willing to not only bring me back, but to give me everything that I had given away, everything that I did not deserve. 
Now, as a father, I'm beginning to see that through different lenses, and I'm beginning to see what it looks like. Corbin is five years old, so he hasn't done anything incredibly wrong yet, but if there's ever anything that he does where he becomes a prodigal or canon or any other children that we have in the future, and, and, and we look back, I look back on this story, I'm going to be reminded that through Jesus and through the power of his Holy Spirit that I can be like that father that welcomed back and offered forgiveness. It also speaks to the judgmental part of me that's in all of us, especially those of us who grew up in church life. And this maybe would have been Jesus' main emphasis when he told the story. It speaks to that judgmental part in me that I see myself in when I look at the other brother in the story of the prodigal son. The brother that gets upset when his brother comes home and gets treated like a king. He doesn't want that. This brother, he's a reject. He shouldn't be treated that way, the other brother says. And so that one story can speak to me and could speak to you in many different ways just depending on where we are. Why? Because the word of God is living and active, constantly at work in the way that we apply it. The word of God is living and active. The word of God reveals the naked truth, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing all the way to soul and spirit, dividing, dividing marrow from itself, going to the deepest parts of who we are. You got that idea of marrow, the, the physically deepest parts that they could imagine at that time, and it separates everything. It pierces to the very core of who we are, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our heart. We see this. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, especially chapter 5, after the Beatitudes where Jesus goes into this where he talks about anger and lust, uh, and, and he looks at the heart, and he says that if you are angry at your brother that you've basically committed murder, and he equates the feelings of the heart with actual action when it comes towards our righteousness before God, and the Word of God does that, right? When we hear Jesus speak about anger, when we hear him speak about the true nature of murder, we can, without reading those words, think to ourselves, well, I think those things, but I haven't acted on them, so I'm okay. But when Jesus' word pierces the intentions of our thoughts and hearts, it doesn't matter so much just what I do, but also what I think and also what I feel, also what I dwell on. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing all the way to soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then it says in verse 13, it opens us all up, leaving us naked, there's that word again, and exposed. You know, exposed may have even a worse connotation than the word naked. Think about that for a minute. You think of the word exposed. What I think of is someone in a newspaper and there's a headline, a politician or a leader or someone that's considered a stalwart of the community that is, something has been found out about them and they have been exposed. I can see it, like on the National Enquirer or something like that. I could see that word that, okay, there's something that this person was hiding and we have found it and now they're exposed. They're open to the rest of the world. The Greek word is even more visceral behind this one. It's even more evocative. Uh, what the Greek word means behind the word exposed is it actually means, it's a compound word, and it means to, to bring back or to pull back or hold back the neck. Now, hold back the neck, what in the world does that mean? It would be like someone who was dealing the death blow to someone, where you pull back their neck and expose their jugular so that you can strike them and kill them with one blow. 
Some people think that that's what the author of Hebrews was talking about. Others say that maybe to bring back the neck, that that was a metaphor of the way that criminals were treated when they would be in the shackles and someone would bring back their neck so that they would have to look on the public and the shame and humiliation that that would bring. Again, it is an evocative word, a visceral word. Exposed does pretty good justice as far as our language is considered the epitome of vulnerability. This is what the word of God does to us. It exposes the nature and intentions of our heart. I was reading through the Old Testament this week, and in 2 Chronicles 34, I happened upon a story. And I, I got to be completely honest with you, okay? There are parts of the Bible where I, it's really hard for me to pay attention to everything that's going on because sometimes they can be hard to read. Chronicles and Second Chronicles is one of those times. It's a lot of history. It's a lot of this person was the, gave birth to this person and son and this and son of that. And this is what happened. And if you want to read more, like, that's what I love about Chronicles. I don't know if you ever read through Chronicles. There's, there's places where it gets to, it's telling a story about one of the kings. And then they'll say, by the way, the rest of the stuff about this king is found in some other book, and you should check that out. And of course, I'm thinking, what book is this found in? You know, uh, it might be talking about the book of Kings or Chronicles, but anyway, that's something I find interesting. You may or may not, depending, judging by the look of your face, you don't find it nearly as interesting as I do. Uh, but in 2 Chronicles 34, there's the story of a young king, Josiah, who takes uh, the throne when he is eight years old. His father, Emmon, was a bad king, an evil king in just about every way. But Josiah begins to write things, and he goes through the kingdom, and he begins to, to take out all of the idol-worshiping place, the high places, as it's called in that part of the Old Testament, and he does a lot of good things, and he even goes to the temple to try to, to uh, not rebuild it, but to, uh, to make it look better, uh, to kind of redo it, uh, remodel it, so to speak, to try to make sure that it's being taken care of the way that it's supposed to. And one of his priests named Hilkiah, actually, when they were cleaning out the temple, when they were doing the work there, Hilkiah founds the book of the law of Moses. Now, this is how far Israel had gotten away. They didn't even know where the book was at that point. Not only were they not obeying it, they didn't know where it was. Now, it might be true for us sometimes that maybe we don't read our Bible so much and we just completely forget where it is, but this was like the book. It was the only one. It wasn't as if they all had Bibles. It was the Bible. It was the Word of God, and they somehow forgot where it was. And some guy who was cleaning and dusting, it actually says that he was getting money out of the temple. That's about right. They're going to get money. He happens to find upon this book of the law, and he reads it. He says, you know what? The king might find this interesting. And so he goes and he takes it to Josiah and he reads it to Josiah, the good king Josiah, who is trying to put Israel back on the right path, trying to put Judah back on the right path. And when Josiah hears the words, it says in 2 Chronicles 34 that immediately he tears his garments. That's a sign of grief and anguish in the Hebrew culture. He tears his garments because he immediately recognizes how far they have strewn from the will of God. And if he was listening closely to those words, which he does seem to, to, to be doing, he knows that not only have they gone away from what God wants, but he knows what happens when God's people go away. He knows that judgment is coming, and it does come. And so he renders, he rips his garments as he realizes just how far they have gone away. Now, he takes some steps to try to make them go back in the right path. Judgment is still coming. But if you read through Second Chronicles 34, Josiah comes out smelling like roses, and he gets a blessing from God, an extra blessing from God, because he is such a good king. But this is what the Word of God can do, that it could sometimes be difficult, that it could sometimes bring conviction. Now, hear this in a spirit of love, but hear it nonetheless. It should be painful for a sinner to read God's word sometimes. 
Sometimes it should be difficult when I read the words and commands of a holy God who, according to this word, has called me to be holy as he is holy, has called me to be perfect as his heavenly Father is perfect. That's Old and New Testament being quoted to you. That this is what this word has called me to do. There should be some points where I read it and my response is, ouch, dang it. I know I needed to work on that. That's, that's painful when I think about that. I told you that I like to seem like I have it all together, but sometimes I don't. That passage in Matthew 5 where Jesus speaks to the thoughts and intentions of our heart, when I read that about anger, ah, oh, man, Jesus, I wish you hadn't have said that. I wish you would have just said that as long as I don't smack somebody or try to hurt them in some way or actively work against them, that it's okay. But no, you're saying that if I even call them a fool to somebody else, that that is the same as murdering them, that if I have anger in my heart towards that individual, that that is the same. I can't, and I have never been, I want to someday, but I have never been in my life able to read that scripture and say, yep, Got that one down. I feel good about that one. No, if I'm being honest with myself and I'm letting the word of God speak, anytime I read that scripture, I hurt a little. And I should. Because the word of God exposes. It it renders those places that we should be convicted. Because what is God trying to do? Not put us down. He is trying to make us more and more like him every day. So that we can have an abundant life on earth. And so that we can be his messengers to those who need to know him for now and for eternity. That's what he's trying to do for our good and for the good of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not going to stop here. Now, the word of God, it does reveal the naked truth. It does pull back everything. It does sometimes leave us painful. But keep reading in Hebrews chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I've already read 12 and 13. It goes on to say this. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. You see, when Paul... or might be Paul, the author of Hebrews. When he, when he considers the word of God and how it pierces directly to who we are and, and how it divides soul and spirit and goes down into our marrow and it and discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart, he is not led to this place like, oh, what am I going to do? I, I hate myself so much. I feel so guilty. No, he realizes that his thoughts and intentions are exposed and it moves him into a place of worship and gratefulness for who God is and that he still invites us to come near to him through his grace to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, as it says, because God is our help in that time of need. And so this, it, it's going back to that little two-year-old child who doesn't care that it's exposed anymore. You know what I'm talking about? When I see that in canon, when I see him run away with the, the, the dinosaur towel hanging from his head and wagging behind him and him completely butt naked running around the house, when I see that, I don't think, oh, that poor child, I'm so embarrassed for him. No, I think I love that kid. I love his energy. I love everything about him. Yes, he's imperfect. Yes, he aggravates the heck out of me sometimes when I can't get him to do what I want him to do, but I love every square inch of that baby. And I think that 
that Jesus has the same response to us, that if we would just stop hiding, he would look at us and say, I love you, child. I love you every single inch of you, every imperfect part of you. Would you please stop hiding and let this be naked and exposed so that I can do what I do, and that is forgive you and heal you of your sin. Because the word of God, it it reveals, but it also heals. Scripture reveals the naked truth, but the Word of God has the power to not just reveal, it also has the power to heal. He's not going to leave us in the midst of our pain and our guilt. He's going to take us to that point so that we can be forgiven of that pain and that guilt and set free from it. And just like all the way back in Genesis 2, 25, that we can be in the place that Adam and Eve were before they gave it all away, exposed and unashamed unafraid because God loves us despite all of our imperfections so use scripture as the tool that it is to pierce through the superficiality of our modern life to get through all of the things that we hide behind and open up you for who you really are as you read these five times a week through our word, 5.11, again, the five is to read Scripture individually five times a week if, is at least. You can do it 14 times for all I care, 21, I don't care. Do read it as much as you can, but at least five times a week when you are in Scripture. Read it in such a way that you're willing to say, ouch, sometimes. That you're willing to, at least before God, be exposed. And then that that one, to read it one time with your spouse or a close friend. If you are uh, single right now, you have a close friend, somebody in your life that you can share that with, somebody that you can be vulnerable with, take that as an opportunity to be exposed before one another. Somebody that you trust. I understand. It's got to be somebody that you trust. But to have at least one of those people in your life that you can read Scripture with and to go through that vulnerability together. And to do that as a family as well. That's our last one. It might be painful to read the Bible in this way. To pray together in this way. Because scripture does reveal the naked truth. Sin will come to light if we look closely enough at God's word. But it might also bring healing and forgiveness. Families, especially this morning. Is there ever any times that you feel distant from those that you love? Like you're playing a game and you're playing your role and you don't slow down enough sometimes to really see each other, start looking through the lens of Scripture and the way that you handle each other, the way that you deal with each other. Be willing to be vulnerable as Scripture confronts you, confronts your imperfections. And then, just like God does, be willing to forgive and be willing to build up through Scripture. The Word of God has the power to bring your family closer than it has ever been. Is it cuts through the surface, divides soul and spirit, cuts to the heart of who we are, revealing our thoughts and intentions of our heart, and then building us up so that we can confidently approach the throne of God with the grace that he has given us. So I would encourage you again, if you didn't get one of these last week or you weren't here, there is a box right here at the front Uh, with our Word 511 challenge, reading the Bible five times individually throughout the week, one time in some way, spend time in Scripture with your spouse or a close friend, and then one time with your whole household, with the people that you live with, or with a group of friends if you live on your own, to spend time together corporately in the Word of God. 
and do so not just, okay, I'm reading, I'm checking this off, but do so allowing the Word of God to be that powerful force that can pull back and unite us to God and to each other. You can pick that up here. There's more copies of that down in the Home Connection Center. If you go down to the Home Connection Center, which is down this doorway and to the right, uh, if you go by there, there is a place where you can also sign up uh, for a couple of giveaways that we have there, Bible basket giveaways, some stuff tied together. You'll see it. It's Bibles and highlighters. There's some notes there. Just sign up for that. Sign up to take the challenge and to be uh, in that drawing, and maybe you can get one of those when we get to the end of this study next week. And speaking of the end of this study next week, Starting a week from tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, we are going to try, as we've been talking about, read the Bible around the clock for a week. Now, we had started with thinking that we would just have 30-minute increments throughout the entire seven days that we would get people to sign up for. But in order to simplify it, what we are going to do, and some of you have already signed up, so listen closely, what we are going to do instead is we have a 24-hour 8 o'clock, 8 a.m. to 8 a.m. on the glass right here. And what we would like for you to do is, if you have signed up for that, to read during that 30-minute increment every day of that next week. So you'd be doing it seven days instead of once. So if, if that's if something schedule-wise is going to mess that up and you've already signed up, come talk to me. We can move you around. We can do something. Um, but I, I encourage you to do that. I think, it'll be, I think it'll be not only fun, I think it'll be beneficial for you. It'll be beneficial for anybody who's in the room when you read it. And like we've been encouraging you to do, if you have Facebook or something like that where you can broadcast it live to the world, uh, the Word of God, we would encourage you to do that as well. We even have a hashtag that you could put so people can find that online. Um, you may or may not know what a hashtag is, so I apologize. But anyway, good to see everybody here this morning. Let's stand together as we think about our time of invitation. And as we do that, I encourage you even now to begin to dedicate yourself to not only being in the Word of God like we have talked about, but being in the Word of God and being honest with it, allowing the Word of God to be vulnerable, to pull back what really needs to be seen. Would you dedicate yourself to that during this time of invitation? Do that right there where you are. The altar is open. I'm here to pray with you if that's something that you need now and after the service. Let's pray together. Bill and Lynn are going to lead us in our song of invitation, and you pray and move in whatever way God is calling you to. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you for the reality and the truth that we see in your scripture that we don't have to hide from you. God, despite our imperfections, despite our failures, of which there are plenty, God, that you are willing to forgive and love us in spite of those things. God, that you want to pull back those things so that they don't have power over us any longer, so that we can be free from them, expose them to the light, so that they might suffocate and that we can live wholly clean, wholly open and vulnerable with you. God, I pray that for me and I pray that for this church. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Have thy no